All right, well, thanks, small group leaders. See you, John. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Alpine Church. My name is Scott Krebs. I'm a teaching pastor here at Alpine, and I'm just excited to be with you here today. Thanks for joining us today. I love to be at Alpine on a Sunday and hear what God is doing in people's lives and just hear what God is up to and how he's moving. If you're a guest with us here today, if this is your first time at Alpine Church, we want to wish you a special welcome, and we're so glad that you've chosen this Sunday to pursue God with us. We're all about helping people pursue God. So wherever you are on that journey, we want to help you take the next step. Now, today is a Sunday I've been waiting for for a long time uh, because we are starting our new series on the Ten Commandments, and I've been thinking about this and praying about this, working on this since June, so I'm ready. Uh, And I can honestly say I have not mastered the Ten Commandments, much to the disappointment of my wife, Um, through these months of preparation, but um, maybe getting a little closer to where God wants me to be, and and hope you'll be there too. Um, So today we are starting this brand new series on the Ten Commandments. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh boy, a series on rules. That doesn't sound too good. Um, I know you wouldn't admit that, but some of you are thinking like, oh, more rules. We have enough rules. We have enough laws in our world, don't we? I was curious, like how many laws are there in the United States? And the answer is nobody really knows. No one knows. There's so many laws in our country. No one knows how many there are. When it comes to something um, like gun ownership, there are over 20,000 laws on the books just on that alone. In 2010, it was estimated that 40,000 laws were added in our country in one year alone. 40,000 laws in in one year. And so who can keep up with 40,000 laws a year, right? In 2008, this is my favorite little story, in 2008, a Congressional House Committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate the number number of criminal offenses in the federal law. So basically, right, these Congress people got together and they said, we want to know how many criminal offenses there are, just in the federal law, not at the state level, but federally. We should be able to figure this out, right? After five years, that committee came back and said, we don't have the manpower to figure out how many laws there are on the books. There, there are too many laws to count. That's what they said. And so um, we are a people drowning in laws. And maybe you're thinking, wow, great. Now we've got 10 more to worry about. Uh, but that's not the heart of this series. The heart of this series is, as it says there, the Ten Commandments, love God, love people. The reason why I am so excited to walk through the Ten Commandments with you is because it's all about how we can love God and love other people. The first four commandments are all about how we relate to God. The other six are about how we relate to other people. In fact, in the Bible, there are lots of laws in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are something like 613 laws that the Israelites were expected to follow. But God gave them the Ten Commandments as a way to summarize uh, the, the whole of God's law. So all those laws about what you can eat or how to approach the Sabbath or what kind of clothing to wear, all of those were then summarized in the Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus himself goes one step further, and he says, I can summarize the Ten Commandments for you. And he said what we know is the greatest commandment. He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And he said, there's a second commandment, which is also extremely important, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of God's law is summed up in that. Love the Lord your God 
God and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's 10 weeks right there. We can be done. No, not quite. There's a little bit more to learn than that, but that's the big picture of what we're doing. What we're really doing is we're getting into the heart of God. The, the law of God flows out of the heart of God, which is why I'm excited for this series. And to show you that, I want to begin before the Ten Commandments, the, the verse right before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 2, God gives sort of His, like, introduction to the Ten Commandments. And you might wonder, well, what is God's introduction to the Ten Commandments? Did He say something like, hey, I'm God, I'm in charge, follow my rules, or else? Right? If you're a parent, you might have tried that before, right? <laughs> Make your bed or else, okay? You know, no more Netflix if your, bed is, if your bed is unmade. One more time. How does God start His law in Exodus 20? He says this. He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You see, this verse is all about the heart of God. Before God unveils His law to His people, He says, remember who I am. I am the Lord, your God. He wants to have an intimate relationship with them. He wants them to know Him. He is not some distant, faraway God who doesn't, who doesn't care about the affairs of people. He says, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you. I am a rescuing God. That's who God is. He is a God who rescues and saves people. He sees people in distress. He sees people hurting. He sees people in pain, and He rescues them. I rescued you out of the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now, some of you are more familiar with the story surrounding the Ten Commandments than others, and whether you know a lot about the Ten Commandments and you can recite them all in the lobby after the service, or you don't know any of them, it's okay. Wherever you are, we're going to walk through them one at a time over the next little while, but um, here, what we need to understand is a little bit about what's going on in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, God's people have recently left slavery in Egypt. In the book of Genesis, God calls a people, the Israelites, and they start as a little family, and they get a little bit bigger, and then they go off to Egypt. Um, they go off to Egypt because there's a great famine, and they stay in Egypt for hundreds of years, and things turn pretty bad in Egypt for them. They go into slavery. And there they are in slavery until they cry out to God and God rescues them. He sends Moses. He pulls them out of Egypt. He does that by sending plagues and the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and, and all that good stuff. And at the end of that, God uh, brings them into the wilderness where they will remain for a time before they enter the promised land. But out in the wilderness, God gives them His law. And this law is meant to guide His people. You see, the, the law of God flows from the heart of God, and the law of God lives to a fulfilling life. That's one of the themes that we're going to see throughout this series, is that God's law, it's not a burden, it's not a checklist for you to just have to, oh, here's one more thing I got to do today, you know, here's one more thing I have to worry about. God's law leads to a fulfilling life. And so he brings Israel, all the people together to Mount Sinai, and Moses is up there, and on the top of Mount Sinai, God gives his, his law to Moses that then goes to the people. He gives the Ten Commandments, which were written on stone by God, and delivered to the people. And what's so remarkable is, to me, what's so remarkable, he starts off by saying, this is who I am. I love you. It's not about a checklist that you have to get through. It's not about living up to a standard of morality. He says, I'm the God who's rescued you, and here's what I want for you. Here's the path to having a good, fulfilling life. And then he delivers the Ten Commandments. Now, when we think about the Ten Commandments for our day, 
what I like to think about, what I've been thinking about is how different our world would be if we all followed the Ten Commandments. Like, if we all took the Ten Commandments seriously and we said, hey, let's put the Ten Commandments into practice, do you have any idea how different our lives would be? For example, we wouldn't have any copyright laws if we all followed the Ten Commandments because we never steal from anyone, right? We would just, we'd be like, no, that's yours. I'm not going to take that from you. That's your property. We wouldn't have to have locks on our doors if we all followed the Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be really good? There are, there are a lot of Alpine campuses. I get to go to all of them. I can't remember all the passwords to all the codes on all the doors because there's too many buildings. If we all followed the Ten Commandments, right? No more locks on our doors. If we all followed the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need fraud protection anymore. Like, think about that. You could drop your social security card in the street. Someone pick it up and be like, here you go, sir. You drop this. You'd have no fear. You'd be like, that's a Ten Commandments guy right there. He's not going to take my social security number and use it. We wouldn't need fraud protection, we wouldn't need spending on defense, we wouldn't need courts, we wouldn't need prisons, we wouldn't need contracts. Any of you bought or sold a home recently? Like, you have to spend a day just initialing things, right? You're like, I'm just initialing. And then one little change, you got to initial everything all over again, right? You wouldn't need contracts if we all followed the Ten Commandments. And so, these Ten Commandments are for our, our good. They're for a better life, and they reveal to us the heart of God, and that's why I'm excited for these today. So, here's what we're going to do every week. We're going to look at the commandment. We're going to see what it meant to the people, the Israelites, who first received it. And then we're going to see how Jesus changes the Ten Commandments. Because Jesus changes, or He alters, He affects every one of the Ten Commandments. Now, He doesn't set them aside. He doesn't say they don't matter anymore. In fact, what He often does is deepen them. And He makes them um, more applicable to our lives than we might have even imagined. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. Now, I know, I know, I don't know all of you intimately, but I know you well enough, I know myself well enough to know we don't love more laws, right? I don't, we don't walk around wishing there were more rules to follow. In fact, I, I, tend to, I tend to bristle against laws, I'll just be honest, I'm revealing more of myself here. I just, I don't like a lot of authority in my life. But here's the thing, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we need to hear what God has to say. I want to take you to John 14, 15, just real quick, two verses before we get into it. In John 14, 15, Jesus is speaking and He says to His disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. And if the idea of rules or laws or God's law seems like you want to resist it, look at what Jesus said to His people, His followers. He says to Christians, if you love me, I mean, if there are a lot of definitions of what is a Christian, but at the end of the day, I mean, it certainly includes loving Christ, loving God. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands, follow them, obey them, know them, put them into practice. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, I want to encourage you, if you love Jesus, to keep His commands, follow Him, follow the Ten Commandments. And then Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. When I was in college, I read this verse and I thought, what? What? Like, what? I, I love your law? I just never thought of that before. I never thought, I've never been driving down the freeway and saying, oh, how I love the laws of the highway patrol, you know? I've never, oh, how I love your speed limits, you know? I've never thought that before. I've never thought, oh, I just love the law. Oh, man, I love being told what not to do. But the psalmist says, I love the law of God. I love the instruction of the Lord. It is my meditation all the day. He didn't have a smartphone, so he had a lot of time on his hands, right? And guess what he did? He thought about God's law. 
Because the heart of God leads to the law of God. If you want to know more about God, it flows, it flows into His law, and then it leads to a fulfilling life. My prayer is that at the end of our time together, as we get to the end of the year, we will say, oh, how I love your law. Not, oh, how I'm burdened by your law. Oh, how I hate the rules of God. No, my prayer is that we'll say, oh, how I love your law, God. It is my meditation. I think about it. I put it in my heart. I memorize it. I put it into practice. So with all that in our minds, let's go to the first commandment. The first commandment is no other gods before me, no other God. Exodus 20, verse 3, the, the Ten Commandments are found in two places, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20 is when they're first revealed. That's where we'll spend our time. And the first commandment is very simply, you must not have any other God but me. Or, as it's also known, as it can also be translated, same idea, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is there is one God alone in the universe. Now, the first commandment is very different from all the other commandments because all the other commandments are about what we should or shouldn't do. This is the only commandment that is really only about how we relate to God. There is one God, and we should therefore have only this one God in our life and not other gods. That's the point of the first commandment. Now, let's take a moment to understand what this command meant to the people around Mount Sinai when Moses received the law and passed it on to them. This was a really surprising opening commandment because the world that the Israelites lived in, the ancient Near East, there were lots of gods. Every people group, every tribe, every nation, they all had their own gods. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, the whoeverites, they all had their own gods. And those gods were thought to be really powerful in their homeland, but that's it. So, it, it would be like this. It would be like if, if we lived in the ancient Near East, if, if America was, we'd have the God of America, that would be the American God, then there'd be a Canadian God, you know, and there'd be, and like the Canadian God would be really powerful in Canada, but not so powerful in America, and, and vice versa. That's just the way they thought. So, like if the Egyptians were in Egypt, they thought our God will protect us. If they went to go battle the Assyrians, eh, it gets a little dicey, because the Egyptian God, not so strong in Assyria. Or sometimes they would attach gods to seasons, and so you'd have the god of winter, and the god of winter would be really, really formidable in the winter, but really weak in the summer, and then the god of the summer would be in charge. And this is how people thought it worked. They thought there are lots of gods, every people group has their own god. In fact, what they might say in 21st century language, they might say, we have our God, you have your God, that's good, let's leave it alone. <laughs> you know, we believe in our God, we follow our God, you follow your God, we think our God's better for us, but hey, you know, let's just, they, they really weren't trying to convert each other. It was sort of like, you have your beliefs, we have our beliefs, um, you know, let's just now fight. That was kind of it, you know, a little different of a situation. But for God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, He comes along and He says, no, there are not many gods. There are not lots of gods. I am God. I am God alone. There is one God of the universe, one God over everything, one God who is in control, Yahweh, as He reveals Himself in the Bible. And for Israel, they were to have allegiance to this one God and this God alone. They weren't to worship other gods. But the sad history of Israel, as you go on and read the Old Testament, is that over and over again they break the first commandment, they worship Baal, they worship Asherah, they worship other gods. 
But what about for us? That's what, that, that's what it meant. You shall have no other God other than Yahweh, who is the true God of the universe. What does this mean for you and me? Three observations for us today. And the first is this, perhaps the most controversial. There is one creator God. There is one creator God. What the Bible clearly teaches us, what the Bible clearly says, is that there is only one God in the universe. Now, we live in a world that is similar to the ancient Near East in this way. We live in a world where people say, hey, there's lots of God options out there, right? There's lots of religions, there's lots of spiritualities, there's lots of pathways to God. And what our culture also says is that there are lots of valid pathways to God. I believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, that's good, let's just let it, let it alone, right? There are lots of valid ways to God. That's what our culture says. You know, you can go to Amazon, you go to a bookstore, there's all kinds of books on spirituality, they're extremely popular, all of them teach slightly different ideas, there's Netflix documentaries that'll give you spirituality, all these kinds of things. There are many gods out there in the world. And yet, what you have to understand, if you want to take the Bible seriously, the Bible says and explains that this is not accurate, that there is only one creator God. I want to take you to the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. This whole section of Isaiah is really fascinating. It's really interesting. It's one of my favorite sections of the Bible. Because what God does is He says, let's have a God contest, all right? Babylon, Assyria, you have all these gods out there. Let's have a God contest. Let's see who's the real one. Let's see who's the one who's really powerful, the one who's in charge. God says, here's what I can do. I can tell you what's going to happen at the end before the beginning even starts. I can tell you what's going to happen in a year, in five years, in a hundred years, in a thousand years. God says, I can tell you that I'm going to raise up this leader to free my people and let them go out of exile, right? That's what God says. I can do all this stuff. I can tell the future. And then what God does in Isaiah, He says, what about these other gods? What about the gods of the other nations? What can they do? Nothing, he says, because they're wood and clay. They're, they're make-believe. They're not real. God says, I am the one true God of the universe. I am God alone. And that's an important point for us to recognize today, that there is one God for all people for all time. Now, there are many religions out in the world, right? There are lots of religions. And Christians, as Christians, we're called to be tolerant of people of all faiths, people of no faiths, to love them, to, you know, friends and even create a safe society where people can worship uh, as they see fit. You know, Christians have always led in that way. But when it comes down to what is true and what is real, Christians can't compromise on the fact that there is one creator God, there's one Lord of all, there's one Savior, that God isn't just the God of Christians, He's the God of everyone. So when someone says what you believe is good for you but not for everyone else or every religion or a belief about spirituality is equally valid and good, we can't, we can't go there. We can't say, yeah, yeah, that's true. Christianity is not just one of many ways to spirituality. Christianity is the only way to God, the only path to the true God. We can have respect, we can have love, we can debate, we can dialogue, we need to dialogue, but at the end of the day, there's only one God, only one creator. That's what the first commandment means for us today. The, another thing it means for you and me today is that you and I, we can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. I think my clicker got, got put offline there. If you could give me the next slide, please. 
you can't serve two masters. Here's the deal. When you read the Bible, rarely did, in the Old Testament, rarely did the Israelites ever say, God, we're not going to worship you. We're not going to serve you. Uh, We're not going to do what you want. We're just going to go worship Baal instead. Here's what they did. They said, we will worship Yahweh, but we're also going to worship Baal, you know? We're going to go, we're going to worship God on the Sabbath on Saturdays, but then we're going to worship Asherah on Fridays or on Sundays. That's what the Israelites would do. And you and I are very susceptible to the same thing. I was just, uh, just read this book on the history of Christianity in Asia, in Africa. And something interesting happened in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, in a lot of what we call the Middle East, there were a lot of cities that were Christians. We, we don't, don't realize this. This is part of history. A lot of us have, forgot, have never realized. But there were a lot of cities um, that were now, they're now super Muslim, that were very Christian. And in the Middle Ages, as Islam made its way uh, and, and expanded over more and more of the Middle East and North Africa, they would come to these Christian cities, they would take them over, you know, and they would tell the people, you need to convert to Islam. And so the people would convert to Islam, but they wouldn't give up their Christianity. Here's what they did. They said, hey, I'll become a Muslim, but I'm still going to be a Christian. So I'm going to be a Christian and a Muslim, right? Sunday's Christian, Friday's Islam, the rest of the week, who knows? It's kind of debatable. And so they tried to be both. They're both. We're Christians and we're Muslims. We do both. Here's what happened. What happened was their kids were really confused by the situation and were like, ah, let's just be Muslim because I don't know this whole Christian and Islam thing doesn't make a lot of sense. The, the culture is Muslim. Let's just be Muslim. And in a couple of generations, all those, that Christian witness was just gone, just went away for the most part because Christians tried to say, yeah, we could be Christians and we can be Muslims. Now, in our day, I don't meet a lot of people who say, you know, I'm a Christian and a Buddhist or and a Hindu. Like, that's not typically how it works, but you and I, even Christians, can try to serve two masters. Jesus reminds us of one of the most tempting ways. Matthew 6, 24, these are the words of Jesus. He said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Jesus says, look, you can't make two things ultimate in your life. You can't have two masters. You can't say, I'm going to just pursue God with all my heart, soul, mind, and spirit. I'm going to put him first in my life. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help my kids walk with Jesus. I'm going to mentor other people. I'm going to make my life all about Jesus. And I'm also going to make my life all about money. And it's all about making as much money as I can and as much money as I can get in my pockets and as much stuff as I can have. You can't do it. You can't do both. You can't. Have you, ever, have you ever had two jobs before at the same time? You ever been in that situation? I, I've been there. Uh, when I first came to Alpine, I was a part-time pastor at Alpine, and I was a part-time high school teacher. And I did not love one and hate the other, I will say, for the record, okay? Uh, but I was always sort of double-minded, I felt like. Because I'd be at one job, and I would think about my other job, and then vice versa, you know, and I'd be like at school thinking about, like, well, at church I should do this. And it was just hard. It was hard to keep it all straight. Now, that's not a sin to have two jobs, for the record. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, what you make ultimate in your life, you can only have one thing, one person, one goal as the ultimate thing in your life. And so Jesus goes right after it, right? And he says, you can't serve God and money. You just can't. You can try, you can pretend, uh, you can fake it for a little bit, but ultimately you will hate one and love the other. You can't serve God in materialism. You can't serve God and social respectability. Here's what I mean by that. 
you can't say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm all out for God, 100% for God, it's all about God. But at the same time, um, I'm, I want to protect my image with my friends. Because sometimes following Jesus might make you unpopular, might make you unpopular with your friends, might make you have to make decisions that seem weird or kind of alienate you from people. You can't pursue God 100% in social respectability. You can't serve God 100% in your career 100%. At some point, something's got to take second place or third place or fourth place. You can't serve God and your family as ultimate things, as both ultimate things. You're here at Alpine. I've had many people over the years who grew up in another religion. Their family's part of that religion. And they come and they realize who Jesus is and they put their faith in Christ and they accept Jesus as their Savior. And now they must make a choice. Are they going to give their ultimate allegiance to God or are they going to give their ultimate allegiance to their family? Because sometimes a family comes along and says, hey, if you're going to do this Jesus thing, you know, then you're, then you're on the outs of our family, Right? You're not welcome as much as you used to be welcome in our family. Maybe you're not welcome at all anymore. That's happened here at Alpine multiple times. Now, as Christians, we love our families. God still calls you to love your parents, love your siblings, respect them, pray for them, help them. But at the end of the day, only one thing can be ultimate in your life. Is it God or is it your family? You see, the, 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 the way that life works best is when you make God the ultimate thing, and then all those other things, they kind of find the right place, right? So if God's number one, and then you have family number two, well, that's fine, that's good, and, you know, you have other people number three, and you put yourself down lower on the list, like, that's good. But when you pursue two ultimate things, you're trying to have two masters, and God says you can't have two masters. You will always love one and hate the other. So we can't serve two masters. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, I want you to ask yourself, what are you pursuing with your life? And don't just say God. But what are you really pursuing? Who are you really pursuing? What are you going after? What are you chasing after with your life? Now, one more observation from the first commandment. Remember what we said? We said Jesus changes everything in these Ten Commandments. If you try to follow the Ten Commandments without Jesus, you're going to really mess yourself up because you're going to be trying to work your way to heaven or you're going to be trying to go through a bunch of religious um, religious uh, hoops that you think you need to jump through in order to get right with God, and that's not the intention. The Ten Commandments are meant to bring us to Jesus, and Jesus changes them and shapes them. And, and let me show you how he changes the first commandment. God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, right? The first commandment is that there is one God. Israel had to change their thinking. They had to stop thinking that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was only the God over them, and they had to realize, no, He's the God of all peoples. When I meet people from Nineveh, when I meet people from the Philistines, they have, whether they acknowledge Him or not, there's only one God over them too, and it's Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That was the shift in their thinking. But then as you continue to read the Bible, what do you learn? You learn that God is Trinity, that there is one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that the, the, the revelation of God finds its most concrete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. That, that sounded kind of philosophical. It's a little more practical than that. Here's what it means. Hebrews 1.3, the Son, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Here's what this means. It means that 
You think of God. There's a creator God. There's one eternal God, and He is beyond our comprehension, and you can't wrap your minds around Him, and you can't even begin to totally understand what it means that this God is so infinite, and He's big, and He's outside of time, and what does all that mean? How do you understand all that? Who is God? What is He really like? And it's so hard for us to perceive all of that, and yet when we meet Jesus, we are meeting God Himself in human flesh. Jesus is the incarnation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His being. Jesus is God Himself with all the power of God because He sustains the world, all things by the power of His Word. And so if you want to know what is God like, who is God, you find God in Jesus Christ. He makes the invisible God visible, we read in Colossians. And this has got some really important implications for us. The fact that Jesus is God massively affects how we think about God. It's not enough to just say, hey, I believe in God. I believe in a God. A lot of people will do that. A lot of people will say, I believe that there's a God out there somewhere. That's very big of you to acknowledge, but that is not, that is not everything that the God of the Bible is looking for. Just for you to acknowledge that, yes, philosophically, uh, that's a good argument. God must exist because every, you know, stuff must have started somewhere. So God, God's the answer. It's not enough to just say that God exists. That's good, good first step maybe, or a good second step, but that's not enough. It's not enough to be a monotheist. Monotheism refers to religions like Christianity and Islam and Judaism that believe that there's only one God. You might say, well, I believe in only one God, so I'm like, you know, this group of major religions in the world. It's not enough to be a monotheist. We can't say that all religions, even Christianity, Islam, Judaism, are equally true because they all believe in one God. No. The Bible goes deeper than that. The Bible says there's only one God, and that God is visibly expressed in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and salvation only comes through Jesus alone. I'm going to take you to Acts 4.12, and here's where we'll end our time today. In Acts 4.12, you have one of the most remarkable passages in the entire Bible, I think, because in Acts 4, Peter the apostle is preaching, he's to explaining to anyone who will listen who Jesus is. And what I want you to understand is now we've shifted. We, we were in the ancient Near East in the time of Moses. Now we're in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is spiritually a lot like ancient Israel, ancient Near East, right? Because in, in the Roman Empire, they believed in lots of gods, right? They believed in lots and lots of gods. They'd come upon a new people group. They'd take them over. They'd say, hey, join us. Hey, you want to keep your God? Great. We'll throw them in our temple, right? We'll add another one to the list. No big deal. Just, you know, just, just add them to the list. They had lots of gods. It was a very, what we would call a religiously plural society. And what does the Apostle Peter say to this world, say to this society? Talking about Jesus, he says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter says, look, there are a lot of claims about who God is. There's a lot of ways that people think they can get to God. There's a lot of religions out there, a lot of well-meaning people, well-intentioned people that have a lot of thoughts about spirituality, but at the end of the day, there's salvation in no one else. Salvation only comes through the name of Jesus Christ, and that's what we mean when we say that God is revealed most clearly, most truly, most is the, the revelation of God is most fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And here's what this means for you and me. When it says that there's salvation under no one else, that's kind of a confusing statement in the 21st century because a lot of us are like, what do I need to be saved from? 
What do I need to be saved from? I, I feel okay. I'm a pretty good person. What do I need to be saved from? Well, I'm so glad you're here to join us for the Ten Commandments because you're going to find out what you need to be saved from every week. <laughs> because it, 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 what the Bible says what you need to be saved from is our sin. Sin is anytime we fall short of God's standard. If you want to know what is God's standard, read the Ten Commandments. If you read a couple, you feel like you haven't broken them, keep going. We'll get there. You'll get there. You'll find some that you've broken. And as you come back every week, as Jesus explains the Ten Commandments to us, you'll find you've broken all of them probably pretty recently. And the Bible says that sin separates us from God. And the penalty for our sin is death. We can't work our sin off. We're not good enough. We can't repay God. We can't, you know, go to a purgatory and make it all better. We deserve death. But God didn't want us to die, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, came to this earth, lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. And we know that because he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead after three days. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is God, if he's the Savior, if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. And we all need that salvation, every one of us. It's not, it's not really about how bad you are compared to anyone else, but it's about how messed up you are before a holy God, and we're all messed up. And so Peter's plea is, this, is the same today. There's salvation under no one else, only under Jesus. The first commandment tells us there's one God. There's only one way to this one God, and it's through Jesus Christ, and you can come to him today. That's the good news. And so I hope today you'll take up that offer of salvation. And if you're here today, you are a Christian, I, I just want to go back. And as you look at the first commandment, don't move too quickly. Don't say, yep, there's one God. Check that box. Next commandment. I want you to ask yourself, am I really pursuing that one God? Is the ultimate thing, the main thing, the number one thing? Or am I pursuing something else or some other things? And God's number three, four on the list. And if that's the case... Be honest with God, be honest with a mentor, be honest in your small group. Admit it to God and say, okay, God, let's put you number one because that's what he wants. That's what he demands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your law. God, I pray that we would be able to say with the psalmist that we delight in the law of the Lord and we meditate on it day and night. God, help us to keep the first commandment, not out of a sense of trying to be good enough for heaven, but Lord, because putting you first makes life better. It makes life more joyful. It adds purpose to our existence and to every day. God, uh, thank you. Thank you that you love us so much that you want to be known, that you want to be worshiped, and that we can serve you. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.